Saturn's rings are younger than humans initially thought. This week on Planetary Radio. I'm Sarah Al-Ahmed of the Planetary Society, with more of the human adventure across our solar system and beyond. Richard Durison and Paul Estrada joined me this week to talk about their research about Saturn's rings. Their findings show that the ring system didn't form with the planet. The event that created them happened much more recently, cosmically speaking. Not just that, but the rings are disappearing over time. We'll get into all the details. Then Bruce Betts and I will share what's going to happen in the upcoming night sky and talk about bug constellations. <laughs> and if you enjoy shiny space nail polishes and fun facts, you'll want to stick around for our space trivia contest. We got some cool findings from the James Webb Space Telescope last week, but that thing just keeps cranking out the hits. JWST has imaged the faintest galaxy ever detected. The ultra-faint galaxy, which is called JD1, is thought to be one of the universe's earliest galaxies. It was formed during a time called the Epoch of Reionization. That's when light first began to permeate through the fog of hydrogen in the early universe. Back on Earth, the United States Federal Aviation Administration and the Commerce Department are working to manage space traffic and debris. A new bill from the U.S. House of Representatives tasked the FAA with tracking objects in orbit that might re-enter the atmosphere and could pose a threat to aircraft. The Commerce Department is also responsible for managing orbital traffic, so they could potentially duplicate the FAA's efforts. And if you enjoy pictures from Mars rovers, we've got a new and beautiful one that you'll want to check out. Day in and day out, the Curiosity rover lives on Mars. And while it was stationary for a day, the NASA rover captured two views of Marker Band Valley in the foothills of Mount Sharp. One of the pictures was taken in the morning, and the other one was taken in the afternoon. The photos were originally captured in black and white, but by merging and enhancing the colors, this picture gives the morning view on the left side in a yellowish tint, and the afternoon view on the right in a bluish hue. It's really beautiful. We share the photo and more stories from space in the June 16th edition of our weekly newsletter, The Downlink. Read it or subscribe to have it sent to your inbox for free every Friday at planetary.org downlink. You'll also find a link in it to the web version of our quarterly magazine called The Planetary Report. The latest issue focuses on the OSIRIS-REx mission, which is going to be returning samples from the asteroid Bennu to Earth in September. We explore why the mission matters and what we hope to learn from the samples it returns. Planetary Society members are going to get a physical copy of the magazine sent to them in the mail, but everyone else can read it for free online. Today, we'll be diving into the fascinating history of Saturn's rings. We have two special guests with decades of experience studying Saturn and so many other topics. Paul Estrada is a research scientist from NASA Ames Research Center, and Richard Durison is a professor emeritus of astronomy at Indiana University, Bloomington. You may hear his friend Paul call him Dick during the interview. They've recently published two studies on Saturn's rings in the scientific journal Icarus. We'll discuss a major finding in our understanding of Saturn's iconic rings. The development was only made possible thanks to the wealth of data returned by NASA's Cassini spacecraft. During the mission's grand finale in 2017, the spacecraft made 22 orbits through the gap between Saturn and its rings, which left us with a trove of invaluable information. After that, Cassini plunged into the planet and ended its mission. R.I.P. Cassini. Richard Paul and their colleagues have delved into this data, combining it with computer modeling. 
they've uncovered some surprisingly cool things about the ongoing drama around Saturn's rings. Their findings not only show that the rings are much younger than the planet, but that micrometeoroids from the distant Kuiper belt out where Pluto lives are smashing into Saturn's rings and causing these iconic structures to dissipate over time. Let's learn more. Hi, Richard and Paul. Thanks for joining me. Hi. Oh, thanks for having us. I'm so glad to have you both here to talk about this, because let's face it, if you walk up to a random person on the street and you ask them what their favorite planet is, I mean, other than Earth, obviously, because that is obviously the best planet, but they're all going to say Saturn, and they're going to say it's Saturn because of the rings. How old do we think Saturn's rings are now, and how long are they still going to be with us? After teaching 100-level astronomy for decades, I, I like to keep round numbers rather than the kind of specific numbers you'll find in papers, because there's still some uncertainty. But it looks like the rings are less than a few hundred million years old and will only live less than a few hundred million years more. A few hundred million years sounds like a long time. It's enough to take us back to the dinosaurs if you go back in time. But that's relatively recent when you think about the planet itself and the planet and solar system being basically four and a half billion years old. Most people you know, decades ago thought the rings formed when the planet formed. I feel like what's interesting about this is there have been so many little clues here and there over the years that Saturn's rings are young. But the first time that I saw an article that actually said not only are they young, but they're disappearing, I had this and if influx of mixed emotions, because that's that's really cool to know. But also, it's kind of sad to think that Saturn's rings won't always be around with us. And I'm curious, do you have any kind of words of wisdom or any kind of happiness that you can share with people that might be feeling a little melancholy about the fact that Saturn's rings are going to go away? My feeling is, is that if we look at other planetary ring systems, like the Uranian or Neptunian ring systems, you know, they're still around, but they're kind of very sparse. They're not going to completely go away because I think eventually the process of, of the bombardment, you know, as you get punier and end up in these annuli of rings, is that it becomes less efficient and then other processes can probably hold the rings in place. So it, I don't think they'll completely go away, but uh, I think it's just because they're so majestic right now and so massive. And I think that's what captures everybody. But I think that that is just maybe not a normal circumstance. I think it's possible that all of those planets, you know, even Jupiter, Jupiter's ring is nothing but a bunch of small micron-sized dust now. They were maybe much more massive when the planets formed. And there's reason to think that that would be the case because these moons might have formed from those massive rings, you know, because they, they can't be too massive because then they will go away. And they kind of spread viscously like molasses, you know, so you could actually make all these moons out of these rings. The idea that they're constantly being impacted by this dirt coming from, in this particular case, mostly is coming from Kuiper Belt, but, you know, leftovers of formation of the solar system. It's just kind of natural that they're just going to get eroded. I think we maybe we were all sort of had the blinders on, you know, on the surface, when you think step back and think about it, it kind of makes sense a slightly different way of looking at it. One, we're impermanent, but we enjoy being here, right? Okay, so Saturn's rings may be impermanent, but everything's impermanent on some level. And I think the wonderful thing is 
that it's a great lesson in how dynamic the whole universe is, that when you have a complicated system of interacting stuff, you get unique behaviors, unusual behaviors. And a system can sit there rather quietly for billions of years and then do something dramatic. We have the Cambrian explosion of life evolution on the Earth. Happened in a very short period of time, half a billion years ago. But life was around for billions of years before that. These things happen in complex systems. And it's one of the beautiful things about the place we live. And maybe we are, in fact, very lucky to live during a time when Saturn's rings are so big and beautiful. But you're right. Things change over time. And that makes, to me, that makes it even more special that they're as awesome as they are now. And one more thing. Think about eclipses. Yes. Solar eclipses. That's another coincidence. You know, we happen to be around at a time when the moon just about covers the face of the sun. So we get to see the chromosphere prominences and the corona every once in a while. And uh, Bloomington, Indiana, where I live, is going to be right in the middle of the of totality uh, next April. That's so yeah, lucky. Might even come up there, there. Are we assuming that these micrometeoroids are coming from the Kuiper Belt just because that's where there's so much leftover material? Or is there something about their composition that suggests their origin? Well, there's a measurement. And that, that, that's the key thing. There was a measurement of the influx of interplanetary meteoroids into the Saturn system. That was really key. That actually held up our papers for a few years. That's the third paper in this triumvirate that's being talked about. And that's the paper on the cosmic dust analyzer. And Paul is actually on that paper. I'm not. So maybe he wants to address that a little bit. So we know that number, and that really helped. <laughs> and the, the cosmic dust analyzer is an instrument aboard Cassini, correct? Yes, that's correct. That's uh, some work we did with Sasha Kempf at UC Boulder. He was the PI on the CDA instrument. Uh, so, the, so the CDA instrument basically is just a dust collector, and it measures the impact on a sensor and tabulates all of these impactors. You know, that, that as it's flying around, it's got an open dish, and occasionally a particle will come in and boom, and hits, and, and, it, and it gives off a charge, and you can measure. Depending on the orientation, you can determine its dynamical origin and also a, a sense of what the material is. So just to kind of put it into perspective, let me just back up. You know, so this instrument it was on for over 12 years of the Cassini mission. That was its job, was to measure these dust particles. And so it logged, I think, well over 2 million impacts over the uh, 12-plus years of observations. But only 163 of those 2 million are considered micrometeorites of extrinsic origin coming from outside the system. So that just shows you most of them are actually little particles from the E-ring due to Enceladus. And then you have to filter all of those things out. In fact, if you flew through the E-ring, it didn't even, we didn't even bother to check whether any of those particles were, there's just too much going on there that you, we just wouldn't even look for it. But there's only 163. And we had, you know, the, the trajectories and we did models and you sort of back up their trajectories and you come up with a dynamical character that is consistent with the Kuiper Belt. So these are basically things that are making their way over millions of years from the Kuiper Belt due to collisions and eventually come into the Saturn system at 
relatively low speeds as they enter the gravitational influence of the Saturnian system. And, and then they get sped up. You know, they get focused onto the rings because they come in so slow. And then planet focuses them on the rings. And then this just enhances this effect of because the, the surface area of the rings are so huge. I mean, the, the number is actually very small when you look at it. Uh, what that micrometeoroid flux is. You know, you, you look at the number and it's like 10 to the minus 16 kilograms per square meter per second. You know, it's a small number, but it adds up. And the surface area of the rings is so huge. If you were to put it all into a moon, smaller than Mimas, the surface area of the rings is like 10 to 100,000 times the surface area of that moon. So you could, that's how you sort of can appreciate that even though that number is so small, it really is consequential for this process. I'm not sure a lot of people really understand the fact that these rings are so bright and shiny does not indicate that there's like a bunch of material in the rings. In fact, they're actually kind of thin and we didn't really know how thin they were until Cassini got there and particularly during those ring dives to see just how thin they are. Can you give people an understanding of the structure of Saturn's rings and how surprisingly thin they are. I've got an analogy I used in the uh, in my 100 level classes, and that's uh, if you made a, a scale model of Saturn's rings and plopped them down, say made them the size of my local county or central Indiana, they would be as thin as a sheet of paper. That's how thin they are. Where you're getting to now is the idea that, uh, well, how did the rings form? Now, now that we know they're young, how did they form? And people have tried to work the numbers on how likely it is that, say, some big object big enough to create the rings came into the Saturn system from outside and was broken apart by tidal forces of Saturn and settled into an equatorial orbit around Saturn. And the numbers don't work. There are people, at least as, as far as we know, there aren't enough big objects. The probability of seeing a ring system like that is pretty low based on an object coming in from the outside. That leads us to what I was saying before that uh, about complex systems. The Saturnian uh, moon satellite system is actually pretty complicated. And if you look at it closely, there are things that are hard, a little hard to understand. I mean, some of these moons have been melted. Some of them have hot oceans underneath the surface. So what's that all about? I mean, they're in orbit resonances now, some of them, but it's hard to make that effect strong enough to produce the kind of surfaces on these moons that we see or explain Enceladus's hot ocean. But if something dramatic happened, some sort of billiard game happened due to a, a, a simmering instability, say, of the orbits of this complicated satellite system, all hell might have broken loose a few hundred million years ago, and that's why it looks the way it does now. And as part of that game, somebody got shoved into too close to Saturn and broke apart. That is Pure speculation on my part, but there are some people who are thinking about how that might have happened. They're kind of subtle dynamics, and it, uh, I like it because it's an example of what I was saying before. 
So this complicated system can sit around for billions of years and rather abruptly do something really kind of extravagant and, uh, and amazing. That's happening all the time in the universe on different scales. Well, there's so many satellites in that system. I mean, at this point, what we think there's 124 moons of Saturn that we know of. There's got to be all <laughs> kinds of interesting shenanigans going on there. This makes me wonder something about Enceladus, which has been kind of sitting in the back of my brain for a while. That thing's just been geysering water into space for what seems like a while. But at some point, you would imagine if it had been doing it for billions of years, it would run out of water to do so which always made me wonder if it's only a recent development that it's been kind of geysering this much material into space. And this would explain that for me. Maybe there was some kind of event that finally allowed Enceladus to get to this point. And that's wild to think about all on its own. It's not inconsistent. I mean, mm -hmm. like the state of Enceladus is strange. You know, there's clearly really high heat flow in the southern Equator. I mean, it's like, yeah, something knocked the crap out of that thing or reformed. Other moons like Tethys, they're almost pure ice. It's like almost like you've redistributed material. And it's like, why is Tethys pure ice for the most part? Because, you know, eventually when things settle down, all this stuff is going to crater the surfaces of these moons as you clean it out. There are a lot of strange things in the Saturnian. And, you know, Saturn itself, its interior is very strange. So, Teetering on stability, I think, is kind of a good way to think about it, these kind of systems. Any little thing can push it one way or the other, and something happens, and all hell breaks loose. There's so many questions. I mean, why does Titan have this large eccentricity? I mean, it has a relatively large eccentricity. It's like there's so many things. So, of course, we would love to go back to Saturn. Well, thank you both for joining me and for sharing so much about Saturn. I've actually learned a lot just listening to all of the interesting details about moons and rings that I hadn't even considered. And I'm looking forward to that that paper that's not out yet. I'm definitely going to read that. <laughs> Hopefully soon, yes. Uh, I want to thank the audience for being interested in this, and I want to thank the Planetary Society and you, Sarah, personally, for, uh, for following through and, and making this happen. Happy to do it and always happy to share more Saturnian science. Same sentiment for me as well. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks so much. Thankfully, now is a really great time of year to go out and spot Saturn in the night sky. And if you have a telescope, 10 out of 10 recommend checking out its rings. You can find the extended version of my interview with Richard Durrison and Paul Estrada in the podcast and online version of this show at planetary.org slash radio or anywhere you listen to your favorite podcasts. We'll be right back for What's Up after this short break. Ready to level up your space game? Hi, I'm Amber, Digital Community Manager for the Planetary Society, and we are launching our brand new digital member community. This is a place that's built exclusively for Planetary Society members. Here you can connect with fellow members from around the world, join live events you won't get anywhere else, and delve deeper into the wonders of our cosmos and the missions that explore them. It's all about putting the society in the Planetary Society. I'll see you on the digital frontier. Hi, this is Kate from the Planetary Society. How does space spark your creativity? We want to hear from you. Whether you make cosmic art, take photos through a telescope, write haikus about the planets, or invent space games for your family. 
really any creative activity that's space-related. We invite you to share it with us. You can add your work to our collection by emailing it to us at connect at planetary.org. That's connect at planetary.org. Thanks! Welcome back to Planetary Radio. Let's check in with Bruce Betts, the chief scientist of the Planetary Society, for What's Up. Hey, Bruce. Hey, Sarah. How are you doing? Space stuff, you know. Space stuff. There's still space stuff going on. Always. Did you know there's still, there's still things in the sky? There are a lot of stars you can look at, and in the night sky, you can check out Venus. Super bright over in the evening in the west. It's still looking very cool. Mars getting closer to it through July 1st, and then there'll be... A few three and a half degrees apart, so a little ways, but still fairly close. Mars much dimmer and reddish. If you're picking this up right when it comes out, you may be able to go out and look in the evening of the 21st and check out the crescent moon hanging out with Venus and Mars. Uh, otherwise, the moon will it'll, it'll still be there, but it'll be somewhere different the next night, the way that pesky moon does things. And the pre-dawn sky, Saturn's just cooking its way up higher in the sky, so you can it's coming up. A couple hours before dawn, and right before dawn is high in the east or southeast. Then you got Jupiter looking really bright down low, but getting higher and higher as we go along. So all in all, a good collection of planets still. Yeah, I was out the other night, and I caught one of my neighbors just staring up at Venus in the sky, you know, kind of like, what is that? I never know whether or not to, like, stop and answer the question I see in their eyes. Like, that's Venus. Just yell Venus at them and keep going. <laughs> That's a great way to make friends. Just Venus. <laughs> okay, I didn't know you want to make friends. Then, yeah, probably not the right way. <laughs> we move on. Speaking of not jokes, but the, one of the greatest missions in the history of the world launched this week. Four years ago, LightSail 2, the Planetary Society's demonstration of CubeSat solar sailing for the first time in history, launched on a SpaceX uh, Falcon Heavy four years ago now. And we, uh, we were up for about three and a half years, then dragged down by the atmosphere and burned up. And we're still analyzing and working on the data. And, and uh, it, that, that happened. Gosh, I can't believe it was four years ago. And light sail will always be in our hearts. I literally have a necklace with little light sail on it that I wear when I think about little oh, light sail, you know. <laughs> little light sail. And this is a great minute to pitch, too, because if anybody doesn't know anything about the light sail mission, well, we could talk about how awesome it is, but we have a whole documentary. So if anybody wants to know more, you can go to the Planetary Society YouTube channel and look up Sailing the Light. Just make sure you have, like, tissues or something, because I can't get through it without crying. I know that's me, but um, I, I think <laughs> yeah. that might be everyone. <laughs> you can also get our general webpage, sail.planetary.org. And there are links to uh, pictures and history and more on that page. And if you're really into it, there are also links to the currently existing technical papers and presentations. So all sorts of good stuff on the web there. And there will continue to be more as we uh, churn out more of what we learned. All right, let's move on to... <laughs> <laughs> So I was thinking, we just had the NBA basketball championship and the Stanley Cup NHL hockey championship. So what if you combine those two in some kind of fact? Well, I did. If Saturn were the size of a basketball, Earth's diameter would be about the height of a hockey puck. 
So picture a basketball with a hockey puck sitting next to it, and Earth's about the height of the hockey puck. There you go. That's not counting the rings. All right, let's uh, slam dunk and check into the next uh, segment of trivia. Yeah, that was smooth. I asked you to name only all the constellations named for insects, and that was to use the IAU officially approved 88 constellations. How'd we do? This is actually really funny because I've never seen so many people get a space trivia question wrong. Mm. <laughs> you managed to completely throw people for a loop on this one. Should have done some biology classification beforehand. Exactly, right? I, I mean, if you're one of the people that got this question wrong, don't feel bad. A lot of people, the majority were there with you, which is fun. We're all going to learn something yeah. today. So uh, first off, the answer is not Scorpio the scorpion. Scorpions are arachnids, like spiders, so they're not insects. Too many legs. And the answer is also not cancer the crab, because crabs are crustaceans. They, they are pinchy, but they are not insects. <laughs> <laughs> insects not defined by pinchiness. <laughs> but, you know, like, I get it. That, that totally makes sense in my brain that scorpions and crustaceans would you know, pop up in people's minds here. But Oh, yeah, definitely. Six legs. Got to be looking for six legs. No more, no less. And the answer is the constellation Musca, the fly. And I think, too, that it makes sense that our winner this week is from Australia. Oh, yeah. Because you have to be in the southern hemisphere in order to see this thing. And I think of all the groups on Earth, the ones that are most likely to know their bugs are probably the Aussies. <laughs> <laughs> well, congratulations. And who is that winner? Our winner this week is John Gwheaton from Sanford Valley, Australia. Cool. And you'll be winning a Goodnight Oppie Thermal Mug. It's one of my last ones, but, uh, you know, it'll be a good opportunity to think about the rover and drink some nice warm tea and consider how many bugs are nearby you, John, at any given moment. <laughs> that was. That was great. And this other comment was actually about your trivia question from last week, which was about, you know, who was the first person to fall asleep in space. Yeah. And Joseph Kelly Poutre from New Jersey, USA, wrote in to ask what you would count in space when you're trying to go to sleep. Like, would it be space sheep or, or speep? Speep. <laughs> All right. What's our next trivia question? Got it short and sweet. What is the closest nebula to Earth? Go to planetary.org slash radio contest. And you have until Wednesday, June 28th at 8 a.m. Pacific time to get us your answer. I don't think I know the answer to this one off the top of my head. That's really fun. <laughs> yeah, I thought so. I, I didn't know myself. I thought, what is the closest nebula to Earth? So we'll see. Hopefully there's not too much disagreement. I, I think it's a clear answer, but I, I usually do. Yeah, and I like this prize this week because I was really lucky. I got to do a collaboration with this nail polish company called Orly that teamed up with NASA to make a whole line of NASA nail polishes and the JWST nail stickers. I loved it. So mm. we were filming recently and I got a lot of cool extra nail polishes and stuff. So this week, whoever gets this question correct, you're going to be getting a copy of their JWST nail polish called The View from L2. And I'll send some cool Korean Nebula stickers along with it. And for those that don't wear nail polish, this makes an excellent gift for people who love space and sparkly <laughs> stuff. So highly recommend. I am obsessed. Cool. <laughs> so let me do your nails all sparkly. It looks like space. I'm wearing I'm wearing the nail polish right now, actually. <laughs> you did, did you just offer to do my nails? Yeah. Fun bonding uh, activities, Bruce. Uh, I'll do your dog's nails. 
<laughs> They'd love it. Yeah, well, the big guy's got nails like about the size of a bear's claws. So you know, perfect. They're black. So no base coat. It's perfect. All right, everybody, go out there, look up the night sky, and think about the fact that you should never paint the nails of a dog. Thank you, and good night. We've reached the end of this week's episode of Planetary Radio, but we'll be back next week with some awesome results about the sun from the Parker Solar Probe. Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California, and is made possible by our Saturn-loving members. Mark Hilverda and Ray Pauletta are our associate producers. Andrew Lucas is our audio editor. Josh Doyle composed our theme, which is arranged and performed by Peter Schlosser. And until next week, Ad Astra. Ad Astra.